This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need is there anything you can't do um actually i don't have a good singing voice <clears throat> the UPS. nope but our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything at least that's good the ups store be unstoppable most locations are independently owned product services pricing and hours of operation may vary see center for details come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time Welcome to the BBC Good Food Podcast. Hi, I'm Tracy Ray, BBC Good Foods Health Editor. In this health series, we'll be talking to professionals and experts about all things health. We'll be discussing personalised health, the importance of sleep, the effect of diet on anti-aging, healthy weight loss and how to supercharge your diet. In this episode, I'll be discussing the future of personalised health with Professor Tim Spector. The question I often get asked is, what is the one thing I should do to be healthy? Is it high protein, low carb, sugar free? Well, with the support of today's guest, I may just have the answer for you. Tim Spector is on a mission to make health personal. Professor of Genetic Epidemiology at King's College London, Director of the Twins UK Study and Scientific Co-Founder of ZOE, Tim has spent years researching what it is that makes health and nutrition so unique to each individual. In his latest book, Food for Life, The New Science of Eating Well, Tim breaks through the noise and shares the dietary rules that actually make a difference to your health. Hi, Tim. Welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be back. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you here. So we spoke back in 2021 about the concept of personalization in health and nutrition, and it was a wildly popular episode. I think it truly blew a lot of minds that perhaps the reason every health tip doesn't work for every person is because we are so individual. And I was wondering if we could start um, with you sharing a little bit about your research and what the key factors behind our body's unique reactions to different foods are. Absolutely. Yes. So um, one size doesn't fit all is 
basically the how you would sum the whole thing up and we've been told for the last 50 years that one size does fit all so i think we have to realize that that was wrong and the the study that really for me changed my mind on this was one called the zoe predict study which uh, i think we discussed a couple of years ago uh, when it when it came out but it was a revolutionary study of its kind with over a, a, a thousand um, volunteers, mostly twins, uh, some in the UK, some in the US. And we gave these thousand people identical foods at identical times of day and took um, thousands of blood tests and other clinical measurements on them for the next couple of weeks. And the the, the sort of aha moment was when we got those results of what happened to their blood sugars and their blood fats after eating this standard, um, these standard muffins, which were meant to resemble a what we would normally eat in a day in the in the UK, and there was a ten to twenty fold variation in people's blood sugar or blood fat responses, and virtually nobody was average. And I think that to myself and the scientific team was seen as quite amazing because we just assumed that, you know, most of us would behave the same way apart from people with diabetes or some uh, major uh, clinical illness. And these were, these were all normal individuals. And the differences being people were much bigger than just age differences or sex differences, et cetera. So all of us respond very differently to identical foods. And this uh, this predict study really was at the heart of that, and we've gone on from there to use that information to uh, create a, a commercial product, a home kit essentially that has allowed us to do that same experiment in uh, over one hundred fifty thousand people now. So, what we're doing is giving people the, this this experiment at home so they can then test how they respond to an identical meal, which is it's moved from a muffin to now it's a cookie um, and it's blue. and But essentially they're getting, they can see themselves, their blood sugar tests and their blood fat tests and their gut microbe results to look at their gut health. And we're doing this in thousands of people every week. And it's, you know, one of the biggest community science experiments ever. And uh, it's it's super exciting because we're finding out so much about people. And the lovely thing about it is individuals find out about themselves, but they're also contributing to science as well. And I think this is really, and everybody is contributing to changing the way we think about food and we think about diets and we think about health and i think that that's one of the most important um things we're doing here you know i like to think it's a positive disruptor in this whole field where it's full of myths and people trying to sell us things and uh, tell us things that aren't actually real and try to put us in boxes so that we have to buy x and y product etc so it's super exciting and um yeah, virtually every day we're making some other uh, new discovery. Absolutely. And I think something that I find very exciting about your research, and you mentioned there, is not only did it start with twin studies, which I think is quite unique in the nutrition literature, 
Um, but also that you're uh, looking at markers from kind of normal, healthy individuals. Um, at least in my experience, when we look back at the plethora of uh, nutrition research over many, many years, um, so often we aren't accounting for the fact of, you know, people with various conditions, you know, who might react to um, different things differently. Um, whereas you're really looking at kind of healthy, normal individuals, um, average individuals, and seeing how they respond to to food. So I think that's incredible data to be getting. And it's really blowing up the nutrition industry, as you say. Uh, yeah, up to now, most of the studies are done on, you know, 10 people, usually 20-year-old students, usually all males, uh, that are studied in these intervention studies. So we've got no data at all of any substance on, on females, got nothing around you know, the men effects of the menopause and old age, and we've got tons of this data now and getting amazing insights into you know, how the age and you know, sex hormones, estrogen, et cetera, affect our responses to food. So this is all because we've just expanded it away from this this, this tiny niche area of studying just a few subjects in, in nutrition departments. That's such a good point, actually, as well. And one that maybe a lot of people aren't aware of is that a lot of the research that we have has often been done in male subjects. Um, and as you know, I know a lot of people listening know there's such a powerful effect of um, hormones and particularly female hormones um, when it comes to things like how our body responds to different foods. So that's a really important aspect to be studying. And I do often wonder if that could be a big factor in um, some of these results that you are getting in terms of how individually we do react to, to different foods. Yeah, well, we've got so many people on the study now that we've got enough. We had enough perimenopausal women to really look at this in in, in great detail, and uh, we've published on on this effect, showing that um, in the sort of five years leading up to the menopause, there is a real shift in the female response to foods, and so eating the same food but being close to the menopause when estrogen levels are dropping, you get an increase in your sugar spike to the same food. And so the the body is reacting more to the same food than it did when the estrogen levels were um, were high. And this causes an extra stress on the body. We're also getting um, more fats retained in the body. It's not eliminated as fast. And we've shown a link between these increased uh, sort of blood signals to... Uh, symptoms of the menopause and uh, duration of, of menopause. So the whole thing uh, is showing that women do go through a fundamental metabolic change at the menopause that changes not only their sugar spikes, but there's also evidence that they change their food preferences as well. So actually more likely to seek out high sugary foods and less healthy foods in a way, which... Uh, is is a sign that often the body responds to sort of stress in that way. So these sugar spikes mean that you you get hungrier, and uh, just like if you had a, a poor night's sleep, the next day you get a higher sugar spike. In a way, being perimenopausal is 
is related to that. And we know that, you know, one of the symptoms of the menopause, perimenopause, is, is poor sleep as well. So everything seems to be coming together to show that there's a disruption, major disruption in the body. And that also explains why there's quite a lot of weight gain just around that time in women. Even if they haven't changed their diets, their body is reacting uh, in a more inflammatory way to those same foods. And so I think this is why these large-scale studies give us such amazing insights into things that, you know, just haven't been studied, uh, you know, for the, the general sex bias that's been going on in, in nutrition research. So it's great that most of the people in, in the studies are actually female. It's redressing a lot of this historical uh, imbalance. That is absolutely fascinating. Hormones is something that we've spoken about on this podcast before, particularly as it relates to menopause. And I just feel like what you said is going to be so healing for so many people listening, because as you say, gaining a bit of weight, having sleep issues, you know, continuing the same thing that you've been doing your whole life that's worked, and then all of a sudden you hit menopause and it's not working anymore and that's a big struggle for a lot of people and I think sometimes you know you're going through this and the the general message out there is maybe you're not trying hard enough you know you you mightn't be eating the right thing or maybe you're not exercising enough but actually what you're saying is that we now see in these studies that there's a real effect happening in the body which is causing um, this, you know, propensity towards a, additional weight gain and, and sleep issues and things like that. And now that we have that data and knowledge, um, it's empowering us to be able to do something about it. Absolutely. Yes. I think up to now it was all about blame and, um, you know, people feeling guilty. They're not you know, going to the gym and uh, doing their 10,000 steps uh, when, in fact, it's nothing to do with that. And that this, these are these changes and need to readjust, not not to calories, but the types of food that they're eating. And we also know that if you can improve your gut health, your microbiome, you can reduce uh, a lot of these peaks and, and improves a lot of the symptoms of the menopause. So we did find that actually uh, people on gut-friendly diets with better gut microbes generally had less uh, menopausal symptoms as well. So I think as well as pointing out why we got it wrong and, you know, these old myths, it's actually a positive message that women can actually do something about this. Um, you know, it's not just a question of whether you have HRT or not. Everybody can um, uh, improve their metabolic health around the menopause if they, you know, listen to what the body's doing uh, with all this new technology and, and take action. So... On the subject of myths and uh, health blame, as you say, um, there's so many different ideas and advice around nutrition and you should be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that and this worked for me and it should work for you too. I'd really like to take some time in today's episode to throw a few of the top health tips that at least our listeners are always asking us about um, and get your thoughts on whether they're true or whether, you know, there's another answer. How does that sound? Let's go for it. Brilliant. So I'm going to start you off uh, with a big one on our website, at least. Salt is bad for you. True or false? Maybe is the answer. Um, it's definitely bad for some people who are salt sensitive and perhaps 10 or 15 percent of the population might be particularly salt sensitive and uh, 
would um, you know, benefit from a real salt reduction diet, which means having less than a teaspoon of salt in a diet a day. But most people are, like me, um, not particularly salt sensitive. So if they're not on a high ultra-processed food, junk food diet that contains lots of excess salt, they shouldn't be worrying too much about salt. And it's much more important to... Um, get potassium through more plants. So I'd rather people didn't suffer uh, low salt foods, which taste revolting, and get some trivial benefit of about 1% benefit on their, their blood pressure like I do, and make sure their food is properly salted. They're not having you know, cut out most of the ultra-processed foods that contain very high levels of things like breakfast cereals and biscuits and ready meals and a lot of takeaways, etc and um, focus on other things that are good for reducing your blood pressure. Um, so, And plants contain massive potassium, and that's probably three times better than just salt reduction. So for most people, if they have a reasonably healthy diet, um, salt is a pretty minor thing, and they should never do it so much that, that, that they're less likely to eat good food. I think that's really important. That You can put salt on your kale and your broccoli. That's much more important. I think that's such a good point is if you're not eating ultra processed food, which we shouldn't be consuming in high amounts for various reasons, then, you know, add a bit of salt and it'll encourage you to eat the good foods because salt makes food tasty. Exactly. I've, I've tried eating without it. It is horrible. Absolutely horrible. So and so about 75 percent of our salt comes from ultra processed food anyway. So I think that's the, the lesson. And that's why you know, countries like the UK have a problem is because 60% of all our calories come from uh, ultra-processed food. So that's the thing to be aware of, not sort of the salt cellar uh, when you're adding it to your uh, your meals to to get it to be seasoned correctly. I think that's really important. And as I say, you can compensate for a little bit of salt by just adding more plants to your plate. What about the idea that breakfast is the most important meal of the day? Am I tripping myself up if I'm not starting the day with a healthy breakfast? It depends. One size doesn't fit all. And for some people, it is the most important meal of the day. It doesn't happen to be for me and millions of other people because I've experimented with skipping breakfast. And uh, for me, that generally skipping or delaying breakfast till around 11 o'clock seems to give me more energy and my mood's better and I don't feel particularly hung hungrier during the day and my metabol metabolism seems to like it. For other people, though, they do actually wake up hungry and would be lacking energy if they sort of, you know, got to 11 or 12 without having anything to eat. So I think we've discovered this as we've been doing studies on fasting that uh, show that there are some people who find it easy, others find it hard, but there is very good clinical evidence now when you sum all the data. Overall, there's absolutely no harm on average to anybody health-wise for skipping breakfast. Um, so a few people find it unpleasant or difficult to do that, but I don't think there's any harm from skipping breakfast as long as you can get the rest of the food you need in in the other two meals in the day. So I think we've we've got to move away from this idea that we have to sort of force feed ourselves and our children, even if they're not hungry, 
um, into eating things they wouldn't normally do because it conveys some benefit. And a lot of these early studies were, again, based on very young people and based on very small numbers. Now we're getting bigger data, including women, including older people, realize that um, for mo many people, breakfast is not the most important meal of the day and can be skipped. And most historians believe that traditionally we didn't really have breakfast. And certainly that's true in hunter-gatherers who are our, our clearest sort of ancestors before farming came in and they don't have a word in their vocabulary for breakfast. And I think the cereal manufacturers have just uh, brainwashed us into thinking, you know, this is crucial for us and, and our children. And um, yeah, if you're hungry when you wake up, have, you know, have something to eat, but uh, don't feel you have to. And very often it, it, it tends out to be the most unhealthy meal of the day as well. So people having breakfast cereals or very high carb uh, starts to the day often ends up in sugar dips and things like this uh, three hours later. Uh, when when people are, are working or doing things that makes them overeat. So, um, yeah, uh, it's a, a big myth. We should kick it out. Absolutely. Uh, you took the words out of my mouth because I was just going to say, I think often the typical breakfast foods we think of are very high carb, very high sugar, you know, cereals, pancakes, waffles, toast and jam. Um, which arguably, if you're just talking about total nutrition and um, nutrients and things in the day, uh, they're not really going to be making up a big concentration of that. So, you know, eat if you're hungry, but um, why not have a curry or a stir fry for breakfast? It doesn't really matter. No, I, I agree. And I, but I'm not anti-breakfast. And I, I know I, I do love a nice... Uh, good breakfast or brunch at, at weekends. Uh, so it's a really important part of the British cuisine. So we don't, we don't want to kick it out completely, but let's stop it as this boring routine of just having ultra-processed sugary foods uh, because we were told they were good for us. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So we mentioned ultra sugary processed foods. Another question that comes up a lot is this idea of uh, sugar. And I think we're often told it's bad for us. But what about alternatives to sugar? Things like honey and maple syrup and sweeteners. Are they actually any different um, in their effect on the body? Or is anything sweet out? Well, I, th I don't think we should be demonizing any one thing. Uh, I think the mistakes we've made in the past with nutrition is just, you know, each year picking a demon and uh, saying this is the worst thing, we have to eliminate it. You know, some years it's uh, gluten, it could be lectins, it, it could be phytates, nitrites, um, sugar, saturated fat, whatever it is. And we focus on that without thinking that food is made up of 50,000 different chemicals and 
it's all about that holistic mix. And sometimes sugar makes things, you know, taste fantastic. And there's sugar in breast milk. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have breast milk. So I guess the the question, uh, but obviously the pub for the public and manufacturers, they know that people now look on the back of the pack and say how much is, how much is sugar is in that product. And so there are now 50 different uh, words for sugar that manufacturers are allowed to use on the back of the label to disguise the fact that it's actually just sugar. Um, things that, you know, you would never, you would never know. Uh, things like, you know, agave syrup or um, invert sugar or, uh, you know, different chemical names. And, of course, you've got uh, things like maple syrup or fruit juices, which are posing as, as, as sugars. Uh, and essentially, and they're all the same. And even honey is is you know ninety nine percent the same as table sugar. So I don't think uh, consumers should be fooled just because it has a different name. It's really can have a very similar effect on the body, regardless of of what it's form. It doesn't really matter whether it's brown or it's um, you know it's been caramelized or it's high grain or whatever. That just means there's a small difference in the amount of extra minerals that might be in it rather than the highly refined table salt, uh, table sugar we get. And the same is true of, of, uh, of salts, I should say. So they will all show the same blood sugar response if you have a blood sugar monitor on you. So you won't be able to tell the difference. If I have a spoonful of honey, agave syrup, or um, any of these, these chemical alternatives to sugar, I'll get the same um, sugar response. If I'm having a, a, an artificial sweetener, um, such as aspartame or sucralose, or these are the old, old the sort of modern versions of saccharin, um, I will get the sweetness, and I won't generally get that same sugar spike. And they've been, for many years, been told this is, you know, these are perfectly healthy and a good way to cut down on your sugar. And that's why they were allowed to call things like diet foods or diet drinks uh, because Diet Coke was allowed to be called Diet Coke because it was zero calories, therefore um, it was going to be fine. Studies have now shown there's absolutely no difference in clinical trials of people taking uh, foods or drinks with these sweeteners in it compared to sugar. The only difference they show is on uh, tooth decay in children. But there's no difference in diabetes or weight or heart disease or anything else. So these are not better for you than standard sugar. And we don't really understand why they're not better for you because you are getting less calories, you should be getting less energy. We think it they change bits in your brain to make you like more sweet things. So children are getting sensitized to these sweeteners which are in all kinds of children's foods and children's yogurts, which are falsely labeled as healthy. And these pouches, et cetera, they've all got sweeteners in them. So they're ramping up the sort of sweetness counter in the brain so that you're anticipating more sweetness. So it may be that it makes you overeat more other, other sweet foods. But we do know they also uh, impact the gut microbes and so interfere with the gut microbiome, which is this community of microbes in our gut, that are basically like chemical factories, that they're producing thousands of 
vit vitamins and, and other chemicals that are really good for our bodies, our immune system, our brain, our, our way of uh, changing mood and appetite, etc. So this is why we think they are, are no better than sugar and have a, a detrimental effect. So, yeah, um, I'm actually a big fan of sticking to sugar. <laughs> actually, honey or sugar for me uh, I know what I know what it is. I know how much is good or bad for you, and I, I can't. My body is less likely to be fooled. So, whenever possible, I, I will. I would never go for the the chemical diet alternative. I'm so happy to hear you say that because I am absolutely in the same boat. I kind of think at least my body knows what to do with sugar, whereas we don't know for sure that it knows what to do with some of the other chemical sweeteners. And as you say, I think there's a common misconception that um, when you have foods with these chemical sweeteners that you somehow manage to get around the whole sugar equation. You manage to cheat uh, your your body out of that big sugar crasher reaction. But as you so clearly uh, explained, it's looking like that's not the case. When you talk about sweeteners, does that include stevia? Because I know that's one that sometimes there's a question mark around. I'd love to hear your thoughts. There's very little data on stevia, which is the newest one. And um the stevia leaf itself is actually a plant, so you might think this would be uh, a healthier uh, way to do it. But when they started cultivating the plant, they found that it, it, it gave a metallic taste. So one in five people will put off anything with stevia in it because it got a real bad metallic taste. So they've now been uh, genetically engineering uh, stevia to produce it as a, uh, so get microbes to produce it as a, as a chemical. So they are modifying it from its original uh, natural plant form. And we're sort of unsure the effects it has. There was one study did show it had um, negative effects on the gut microbes. So it might be the least bad of the sweeteners, but I, I think, you know, it, it, is, it is a disgrace that people are allowed to release these new chemicals to the world without ever properly testing them on gut microbes and seeing what effects it has on our body. So I'm still cautious about that until there's there's more data because it the sucralose and aspartame, we know about them. We know the bad effects they have. They've been around for 20-odd years. I would suspect that we'll find some the similar things with stevia, but at the moment it, it's too new to be to be sure. So I'd just be cautious about stevia. I Certainly there's not enough evidence to say it's perfectly safe for us. Even if it was safe, you'd still got the, the problem that in children it's sensitizing people to ever sweeter foods and putting them off sour or bitter foods that are healthier for them and, and vegetables. So I just have one last myth because along with uh, sugar, another thing that we get told is awful for us and you should never use our oils. Um, so is it true that oil is catastrophic for your health and it should be avoided at all costs? Or can we um, consume oil in a healthy way? The best choice of oil for cooking or dressing can be the most important health choice you make. And I've only really got one oil that I use and it's extra virgin olive oil. And it's been shown in multiple studies now to reduce heart disease, uh, reduce diabetes, uh, uh, help with weight loss. 
and even some studies suggesting it might uh, impact inflammation and, and um, dementia and cancer. So there was a worry that these oils, uh, for several reasons, were bad for us. And one was they contained saturated fats, and nearly all the oils do. But we now know there are both good and bad saturated fats, and that the constituents of olive oil, it's a mixture of all kinds of different fats, are generally very beneficial for the heart. And fats are, you know, are crucial for us, so there's no evidence that overall levels of fat are bad for us. And they used, the old data was very reductionist. It just used to think of, you know, fats are bad, carbs are good, protein's good, you know, very crude. But within all those categories, there are good and bad ones. So um, huge amounts of evidence now. Extra virgin olive oil is really good for your health, both as a dressing and as a cooking oil. Another reason people thought if you cooked with it and you burnt it and you got, you got a bit of brown smoke, it would be carcinogenic. That's turned out to be complete nonsense. And a lot of that stuff was propagated by the food industry that wanted to sell you cheap sunflower oil or cheap highly refined rapeseed oil or mixed vegetable oils of very low quality, which have none of the really good nutrients of a whole food oil uh, like um, high quality v uh, olive oil. So people should spend that bit of extra to get real extra virgin olive oil it's it's a health drink as well as fantastic way to cook food and is there any distinction between where your olive oil comes from do you go for spanish olive oil or italian olive oil or as long as it's extra virgin i'm assuming bottled in glass or if i'm incorrect do correct me that you choose well quality does vary a lot even within so you know even within countries and I think the first thing is it's got to be extra virgin olive oil. There are still people that cheat on that. And so getting the very cheapest brand may not be right because they might have fiddled the labels. You can tell it's decent. You should be, if you want a, a good bottle, it shouldn't be more than 18 months since harvest. It, you know, the good bits of it only last 18 months. So getting them within six months is really beneficial. So look at the date on the back of your olive oil and make sure that it, it, it ideally it should be just from one area in one country not a mix of countries and some producers will say it comes from Italy when actually only one percent of it comes from Italy so it's really important to get to know your olive oils um, just like wines the labels are often misleading and I tend to avoid the very big manufacturers um, who would be doing more of the blendings and uh, will fiddle the results. So get someone to recommend one, know your supplier, get it from them, and be prepared to pay the right amount of money. If, it, if you've got a, a litre of olive oil and it's £9, it's going to be fake. Uh, it's really as simple as that. You've got to pay a decent amount of money um, for, for the decent product, but... Not only does it taste good, it's going to give you huge amounts of health benefits and uh, for you and your family. And I think it, it's a really worthwhile household expense and something to always have in your larder. Keep in a dark glass bottle, not a clear one. And it should, when you taste it, you, know, you should have some pepperiness to it. So it should make you cough a little bit. And that means it's full of 
poly, these polyphenols, which are the, the protective things, you know, that your microbes love and are really good for your heart. That's some really good advice. And um, I think, you know, it, it definitely is an expense getting good quality oils. But I think from what you said, you can almost consider a high quality extra virgin olive oil as a supplement in ways because it has uh, so many benefits when you are getting that quality. So um, for anyone listening who might be interested in adding it to their diet, but they're trying to justify it, um, I think, you know, considering it as almost that kind of nutritional supplement that you you use day to day. Um, and that's that's why you need to get the good quality it might be a way to to kind of add that in. That's a great idea, actually. I think most people would spend that money on useless vitamin supplements. If they're spending, you know, twenty pound a week on that, just just spend that on the best extra virgin olive oil. You get so much more benefit from it. I think that's a, a, a great point, Tracy. I think sometimes we feel pressured into just getting tons of different supplements, but I always, I don't know if you agree, but I always say to people, if you've been taking, you know, a supplement for a long time and you're not seeing any difference or feeling any difference, then it's probably not working for you because if you're hitting, you know, your nutritional needs correctly, you should feel a difference. So... A new segment that we've added um, to this podcast, because I think when we're talking to health experts, there's very much this idea that, you know, if someone works in health, they're absolutely perfect and they follow all of their advice perfectly all of the time and they eat perfectly and exercise perfectly and they feel amazing. So I've started asking people um, a little bit behind the scenes to dispel some of that mystery. And so I'd love to ask you out of all of your advice, what do you find the hardest to follow? Oh, um, well, luckily, my advice is only try and do everything 80% of the time. And I think what we, we're making this change is to try and not just do things for a few weeks or a few months and, and be like absolutely strict on it. It's doing stuff for decades and that's how we're going to get real change. And so if you can do it for, you know, uh, five out of seven days in a week and you can sustain that for years, that's much better than doing it for seven days, you know, but you give up after six months. So I think most of the things I do, I do break my own rules quite a lot, like, you know, eat, not eating my breakfast before 11 o'clock if I'm suddenly in a hotel that has an amazing buffet in France and, uh, you know, I know I shouldn't be eating those croissants, but I, I'm there, so I'll do it. Or for social occasions, you know, I'll break all my rules because I want it's more important to be sociable uh, because I know that's important for longevity. So I think it's very important for people not to beat themselves up about these guidelines. Realize they, you know, you're not failing just if one day you fall off the wagon and, you know, I don't know, you go into a, a junk food shop and you know and and you have you have your burger or whatever it's not the end of the world as long as the rest of the time you get back on it so i think it's this change in mindset that you you can do this 80 percent of the time and it's fine you know i'm a sucker if someone buys me a whole loads of peanuts and cashew nuts and crisps i will just keep eating them and i know that you know that's my weakness so because i know i'm a sucker for crisps uh, I try and buy those really expensive ones uh, that are 
you know, minimally processed uh, and maybe have some even olive oil on them. Um, so I, I know what, but I know I, I shouldn't routinely buy this stuff. But um, yeah, I, if people put things in front of me, uh, I, you know, there's a danger I, I will eat them because I'm, um, I'm I'm quite greedy in that way. But I think the key is I don't beat myself up about it. I, I know that I'm going for the long term. I'm going for this 80% rule. And I think that's a, a really good lesson that, um, you know, you shouldn't try and be perfect. I think if you are perfect, you you risk being too obsessional and failing, and then then you feel bad about it, and then uh, you stop. So I think the important is in this for the long term, and you know, food is there to be enjoyed, and so not not to be demonised. And so that's the other thing. If you know, it may be not exactly what you want to eat, but if it's tasty and you're with friends and it's an important social thing, that should always take precedence. I think uh, on on an episodic basis. So yeah. Food's there to be enjoyed, so I'm not too worried about uh, messing up occasionally. 1,000%. And I think you uh, made an important distinction there in that, you know, if you are nourishing your body 80% of the time, a nourished body can cope very well with a little bit of what might be deemed less healthy or more, more processed. I think that's right, and that's why it's so important to cultivate a really healthy gut microbiome because the way I sort of uh, visualize it is you're you're creating this diverse set of microbes that uh, this set of mini pharmacies that you know have all the chemicals at hand to deal with all the different foods. And so you're much better off when something when you just go and eat a burger you know once a month to be able to deal with it so it doesn't have any major side effects than, if you you're not eating well the rest of the time, so I think we 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 give ourselves these defences. And there's also another theory that uh, you know a little bit of poison does you good. Um, so that possibly just testing your system with a bit of junk food once a month actually uh, you know might stimulate the whole system a bit like a uh, you know a COVID vaccine. Uh, it gets the immune system sort of fired up so it can deal with more of it. That, that's still a theory at the moment, but um, been an interesting one to test. I love that. I can't wait to hear the research on that. Right. So we've already come to the end of our time. I can't believe it. I have so many more questions to ask you, but I am going to end with this. In terms, you speak a lot about personalized health and obviously um, you've, there's so much research and data behind uh, what you do. But I think it's, I think you'll agree with me in that generally speaking, the kind of global dietary narrative can still tend to be quite general. Um, so for anyone listening to this episode who might feel a little bit overwhelmed by all the health advice out there, they might not feel quite ready to, um, you know, make the jump in terms of uh, going and, and testing different aspects. What's one thing that they could do to kind of start that journey towards um, better long term health um, on a daily basis? There are a few concepts that everyone can can. Uh... Uh, take home really and I think the first one is to uh, forget the calorie um, I think the biggest myth we have out there is that calorie controlled diets are useful and that calories are 
a useful way of assessing food and when they go into supermarkets or shops. So get that out of your system. Um, go for quality, not calorie. And um, the second is to eat more plants. Um, we are in a fiber deficient population here. Only 5% of us actually get enough fiber. And eating more plants, ideally like 30 plants a week, gives you sufficient fiber, sufficient protein, and um, all those nutrients that we've been talking about that you need. And it doesn't matter that you eat meat or fish, as long as you're getting those 30 plants, I don't really care. You know, I think that's the, so it's an easy rule. Try and eat the rainbow, get colorful things when you go shopping, because they often take, they have extra chemicals in them, uh, because of these these defense chemicals, these polyphenols. Eat more fermented foods. We haven't really discussed that, but the UK, we hardly have any fermented foods apart from ultra-processed children's yogurts, which we need to throw in the bin. So, you know, getting fermented foods, whether it's yogurt, kefirs, kombuchas, trying some of these new things if you haven't tried them, like kimchi and sauerkraut, miso, all the sort of Japanese um, uh, soy-based ones. They're really good for you now, little and often. Give your gut a rest. Uh, by fasting overnight, give yourself at least a 12-hour rest is good. And then finally, um, really cut down on the ultra-processed food. Recognize what ultra-processed food is. It's called edible food-like substances is what I call it. The ingredients label will contain chemicals that you, you, you wouldn't find at home. And these are all completely made artificially by robots. And uh, now a 60% of the UK diet, we need to get it down to levels they have in France, Italy, and Spain of under about 12%. So that's uh, those are the food general guidelines. Everyone can make a really big step uh, to being healthier and um, think about food in a, in a completely different way and while still enjoying even more diversity and uh, you know getting out of some of these ruts. Fantastic. Well, I think you've shared several good nuggets there. And for anyone that's listening that would like to find out more about Tim Spector and his work, you can find all of the links on our podcast page at bbcgoodfood.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure. Next week, I'll be chatting to Stephanie Ramaszewski about the importance of sleep for your health. Don't forget about our bonus recipe episode out on Thursday where you can learn to make garlic, basil and olive oil mash. 